Hello everybody, this is J.R. DeRose and I'm your host for Outside the 90. Today we'll be recording our first episode of 2020. We have easily our most prominent guest speaker so far in our studio today in Tim Regan. Tim is the current assistant coach for Bradley University men's soccer team. Uh, he's had a pretty impressive playing career, both collegiately and professionally. Due to his success as a player at Bradley, Tim was named to the Missouri Valley Conference All-Centennial Team and as a member of the NSCAA Adidas All-American Team in 2002. Regan also has a decorated professional career in Major League Soccer with more than 80 senior appearances in MLS. Regan has played under some of U.S. soccer's most known coaches, including Bob Bradley, ex-United States men's national team manager and current LAFC boss. Tim also has an elite pedigree when it comes to life after his playing career. He served as a scout for Toronto FC and U.S. soccer, as well as spending time with various prestigious youth development programs. Recently, Tim has transitioned into coaching. He's managed current USL championship side Indy 11, both as an assistant and interim manager. Regan has a plethora of high-level experiences ranging across almost every meaningful branch of soccer in America, from playing professionally to high-level scouting to his part developing youth players for the national team to his time coaching collegially and professionally. It is clear that Tim can lend his expertise and analysis to almost any topic in U.S. soccer ranging from youth to the professional levels. All right, well, you've heard enough from me, and I'm super excited to have Tim here. So uh, let's uh, let's go hear from him, and let's dive in. Hey, Coach, thanks for coming by today and talking with us a little bit about soccer in America. Um, we have a couple topics that we want to discuss today. Primarily, we want to focus on uh, some differences between Major League Soccer and uh, European Soccer and kind of some aspects that MLS takes on that are a little bit different than maybe European soccer or even some North American leagues that you may be familiar with, like the NBA or the NFL. Yeah, thanks for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. Um, there are a lot of topics that can be talked about between what goes on here in the States and how it compares to the rest of the world, and we're ever-changing. as where I think, in my opinion, the rest of the world is pretty consistent with what they do, and we're constantly evolving, trying to find our place in the world as it comes to soccer and, of course, our other successful pro sports. Okay, so kind of the the big difference that everybody cites who on Twitter and other platforms, everybody cites promotion and relegation, and I think that's a that's a pretty uh, pretty played out topic. So what I kind of wanted to hear from you to start off is there's um, what a lot of people don't know. MLS is a single entity structure. So if you could outline to our listeners what exactly that means. A lot of times when I get into this discussion, and I, I think people are quick to judge without knowing all of the facts and, of course, the history that goes with it. So sometimes I go with, like, government language. I, I always see MLS as a little bit of a communist government where everybody's under the same umbrella. So when it comes to contracts, every player's contract and their paycheck says Major League Soccer on it. So you sign with the league, and the league has a mechanism by which you're placed on a team. So depending on where you come from, that mechanism for someone like myself as a college player was you would leave college and you would go into a draft, and then a team would draft you, and they would secure your rights for that MLS franchise. Uh, in the current day, if you get drafted in the MLS, those rights are kept for one year uh, until the end of the calendar year that uh, Team X that drafted you keeps the, your rights all the way through. You don't have to sign with them. And you can proceed to sign in the USL, or you can go to Mexico, or you can go to Europe, or wherever the game would take you. So this single entity structure, everyone gets paid out of the league office. And it, and it varies, though, if you are a guy that is a big-time player in Europe and you're coming to the States, 
they will have a way for you to get picked up by a team. Um, so in no way is it a free system. Uh, if you, The more you read about transactions going on right now, it is getting closer and closer to being more of a free market, but it's still very much so controlled. And it would take a long time to go through every example. But just so people don't get confused, if you're reading MLSsoccer.com in the offseason, you see, well, they had these guys that were called free agents. There is actually a way for a player who's been in the league for at least eight years and who's 28 years old to be called a free agent at the end of his contract. Uh, Luis Robles is a popular name that just went from the Red Bulls to Miami. And, and these cases do exist, but they're few and far between. And that is what single entity is for the players. Uh, everyone signs at a league and they get distributed. For the owners, it also has another value uh, when it comes to money sharing because all of the owners have bought in to a central pot of money in the middle of the league. Now, they're free within their own stadiums to have ticket prices and food prices and, and parking and do all the things they can do to make money. But when it comes to the, the league dollars, it all goes into one pot, and that is the single entity model. So you mentioned a few minutes ago that there there is a little bit more of a movement that's freeing up kind of this rigged uh, torp kind of structure going on here. Do you think that is kind of like a way that they're getting away of a lot of the success that they started out with? Because I know that the league started in 1996, and it, I don't, if I'm not mistaken, it wasn't until 2007 that they started to f- free up a little bit of that, that cap rule and the designated player rule when David Beckham came and signed for uh, the LA Galaxy. And I was wondering if you thought that this is a potential pitfall for the MLS. I think that they've done it in such a controlled way that they're managing the money spent. Where, as you described, in 96, if you were a big-time player that came to the league when the league started, so a famous name was Lothar Mateus that, that came from Germany. He was the German national team captain, and he came to the States. He might have been making DP money, but it was, if you will, under the table. And I can't prove that because I wasn't there. I guess we'd have to talk to some people that were that were in charge of contracts back then. But the, the first time it became public knowledge uh, was right around those mid-2000s when the dollar amounts for certain players started to go up. Uh, I had the privilege to play with one of those players. His name was Paco Palencia. He played in the World Cup for Mexico. He came to the States in 2004 to play for Chivas USA. And he was making over a million dollars. So they hadn't quite adopted the DP tag yet, but that was their first process into doing so, realizing that they were going to want to and need to pay players a higher amount, make it public knowledge, and in doing so create a way to make that happen, which was, was a designated player. But as I said, it's very controlled. It's had limits all the way through. Um, they continue to expand it and spend salary caps, but I think it's made sense that you can't allow a team to go out and buy seven David Beckhams in a given year because that would totally ruin the whole idea of a salary cap and making sure that spending doesn't get out of control. Could you explain to us a little bit about what exactly a designated player is? Because I think it it, it, uh, frustrates people when they go on and they look on ESPN and FC and they see these massive transfer fees being paid and they just see their favorite teams being able to sign players. Whereas in America, there's a strict, there's like a, almost a quarry on that, uh, how, how many players you can actually sign, how that impacts your salary cap, and how that, how that all works. Yeah, so it'll help to keep the numbers round. If you want all the information, you can go on the MLS website and you can find the details uh, in their player rules. But uh, round numbers, so a salary cap right now, roughly $5 million, and let's call a DP toward the salary cap will only count as half a million. So $500,000 
for you know the best player on your team, that goes toward your salary cap. You could pay him ten million. So a good example in the last couple of years up in Toronto, they've had Josie Alzador and Michael Bradley as two Americans that are of the highest paid in the league for American players, and their salaries have been upwards of six million, four and a half million, big dollar amounts. But toward the cap, it's only going to be half a million. So you're limited to three of those guys, and you're looking at spending $1.5 million of your five on only three players. And the rest of the cap for your roster would take place with whatever you have left. But understanding, too, that MLS rosters, only 20 players count toward a salary cap. And so if you have a homegrown player that's relatively new, they're probably on a small price point, but they don't even count toward your salary cap because that those last – nine players or ten players on your roster are never going to be a significant amount of money making 55 75 maybe even a hundred thousand dollars when you add that up it, they don't even count it toward the cap so uh, in that way the, the idea of the designated player was uh, you can pay them endless amounts of money um, but it's still only going to hurt you so much as opposed to your team budget okay so my question is: Is you mentioned you mentioned two American players there, and Josie Altidore and, and Bradley, who are on designated player status. But would you say that the majority of players on DP status would be would be international players? Yes, yes, no, without a doubt. So does that? How does that impact a little bit of um, growth in terms of uh, like a, like American international players? And do you think that there's a little bit of tension between American players who? don't really have the platform to make as much money as some of these international players coming in? Or do you think that that's kind of just a just a hoopla statement? Um, there's always some level of frustration between anybody who makes a lot of money and people that don't. Uh, in terms of the Americans, I think most of them understand that if they were to go abroad and have a successful career, that they would then warrant the money coming back. So Michael Bradley was a good example. He had a pretty good run. Um, not amazing, but in, for an American player, uh, he went over to multiple European leagues and proved he was capable of playing and starting and being an impact player. As where you know another guy might go over for three or four years and come back and you're saying, well, why would you pay him two or three million? Uh, it just doesn't make any sense. So another example, when Tim Howard came back, he had, had a very long career. He was still good enough to be a top-level player in MLS. And I'm sure other people might have opinions on that, but based on his ability, he had done pretty good things that warranted high-level pay. So I don't think there is going to be a ton of animosity in the world. I think you just understand that's the world market. And if a guy comes here and let's take Zlatan as he comes to to the Galaxy and is absolutely fantastic in terms of scoring goals, well, are you going to argue with how much he gets paid? I mean, most of these guys do – they back up their pay, and when they don't, they're gone after one to two years. That's just like the rest of the world market. Okay, so that, that leads me into my next form of question here, and that's something that you see primarily in American sports with the NBA and the NFL, but you don't hear so much about in soccer, but that's um, that's basically like a, a players' union, and does that exist in Major League Soccer? Yeah, so MLS does have a players' union. Uh, we've had one since the first collecting bargaining agreement went down in 2004. It was executed before the 05 season. And prior to that, what you had in MLS in the early days was basically just litigation 
where players would try to gather and basically sue the league and try to get some rights. It didn't work, and eventually uh, a couple of players got together and they found some backing uh, in the D.C. area and formed the first MLS Players Union. And what that started with, quite simply, as a player that was active at the time, uh, we all took money out of our wages and started to put it in an account, and the Players Union kept that account. And uh, that helps fund the Players Union, so the players pay into it. And it also prepares for uh, what would be a, a bad time that would be the ability to strike. And if you want to go on strike, you still need to pay your players to make sure that they all just don't go broke. So over the course of now 17 years, you've had our 16 years, you've had a good run of the MLS Players Union accruing money. And so right now, as the 2020 season is getting close to preseason, they are in negotiations for another collective bargaining agreement. And if if it doesn't go well by the start of the season in March, they have the potential to, spread, to strike. And that is because the, the base of money has grown so much over time that the players' union gets stronger and stronger. And, of course, salaries have gone up, so there's more money being kicked into the players' union. But that initial CBA that went down in 2004 was very, very basic. It was essentially the ability to have a minimum wage and to make sure that everyone got health benefits and a 401k was adopted and what are very basic things in any work realm for full-time employees. And that was the first time it's, it happened. And then each collective bargaining, I think there was another one in 10, uh, they're, they're about on five-year cycles. So you do the math from 05 to 10 to 15, and here we are in 20 uh, going for another version. So that sounds like it, it worked uh, effectively because – from what I've learned a little bit through research is that the, the minimum salary for players, as well as how much some of these designated players are making, like we talked about earlier, but the minimum salary is also going up with players earning hefty sums compared to what they were earning ten even 10 years ago. It has, and it, it definitely has significantly helped the low-end player, but it's also very much still helped the high-end player because they've been given the ability to make more money. Uh, they've also, as we talked about earlier, this ability to be a free agent. If you've been in the league for a long time and you're a certain age, uh, you get a freedom that nobody else has been given. And those, some of those ideas started with collective bargaining. And there are also little, lots of little details when you go through things that a lot of people don't hear about. Um, appearance fees. There are certain price points for appearance fees for your club. For what are league sponsors or national sponsors, it gives you what is a more respectable wage for a professional athlete to show up and do something for um, Coca-Cola or uh, big-time sponsors like that where they're not just going to pay you 250 bucks. In comparison to the rest of the world, our MLS Players Union in the States is unique, uh, but not one of a kind. So the Germans have one, and if you were to look it up, if you want some more information on your own, there's a organization called FIFPRO, F-I-F-PRO, and they are a representative body for 63 member nations where players have some representation. Uh, not exactly the same as what we have here, but at least the players are backed by something in terms of uh, help if it's ever needed. Well, as we outlined in the intro, Coach has actually spent time in what is now the USL, and I was hoping that you could outline for us kind of the structure of how USL works and how it how it uh, coexists with an MLS and how it has multiple sub-leagues and in terms of the championship and League One and just kind of give us a little bit of background and history and how that works. 
Let's start with the history because it's hard to talk about the current without knowing where it started. And so the USL has been around since the mid-80s and took its little closer to its more current form in the mid-90s with a league that was called the USISL. And eventually that league, after a couple of years, kept getting little name changes and became the A-League. And the A-League was, when the MLS started, pretty strong in a sense that the last non-MLS U.S. Open Cup winner was the Rochester Reiners, who were an A-League team in 1999, and they were good. They were better than most MLS teams because they had continuity, they had good players, they paid well, and it rivaled the MLS in that way. But as the MLS grew stronger, the A-League grew weaker. And over the course of time, it, it became much clearer that it was a second division. And as it evolved into the late 2000s, those first decade of, it, it was... How do you say just started to get weaker and weaker in terms of stable teams and teams would drop uh, quite a few teams stayed for a long part of the history but this current usl model has become important because they are backed by the same group so you're looking at the championship and the league one make up our second and third division in this country the fourth division being purely amateur is also exists with league two so the usl created this nice steady one two and three structure now there are rival leagues right now we're starting in 2020 with another third division league nisa and there's still the npsl which is another fourth division league so there's still a lot going on in our country that's a little bit discombobulated but i believe at this stage that the usl has brought stability there's last season 34 teams in 2019 in the USL Championship, 10 in the first year of USL League One. The MLS will have a big role to play as the future goes because what will they do with their reserve teams? Will they mandate all of them go to the championship or League One? At this stage, it seems to be leaning toward League One. That will, as time goes, sort itself out. It hasn't quite done so yet. You look at certain teams like the New York Red Bulls, too, have been very successful in the championship, and other teams are just much better suited for the League One model, which is lower pay and more younger players. So I think something that is confusing people right now is that when they hear the term championship, it is immediately thought of in terms of the English championship, kind of how that works. But I think it's important to note here that uh, soccer, professional soccer in America isn't exactly run the same way as Coach outlined earlier in terms of like a, like a FA kind of operates things in England, whereas the championship and the Premier League, obviously we don't have promotion relegation where there's teams coming up and down. So could you outline to us a little bit of maybe some gaps or some quality pay, how, any real differences drop-offs between Major League Soccer and then the USL structure and its multi-league system. I'll start with the first point you made, which was the fact that our governing body, U.S. Soccer, does not run the leagues, and that is much different than every other country. As you said, in England, the FA is in charge of the national team and the leagues. In our country, MLS is a separate entity, as is the USL, as is the NPSL, as the NISA. They all have standards they have to follow. The Federation sets those standards. So if you were to go into the Federation's protocol, you would see that in order to be an MLS team, there's a certain amount of money an owner has to have. There's a certain amount of city size, population, stadium size. And then that decreases when you get to the second division, which is the USL Championship. It decreases again when you get to the third division, which is League One. And so right now, 
there are just natural drops from MLS, which is a salary cap of roughly $5 million right now if you were to max it out. You drop down to the second division, the, the championship level, and they don't have a set salary cap, but there is a natural market cap. So a high-end team would spend a million dollars on their player salary budget. That doesn't include maybe some housing or some other little perks the players might get. And if you go down to League One, a high-end team would spend about 400000 on their salary budget. And these are high-end examples. Uh, at this, the championship in the League One, as our second and third divisions, the high-end is rare. There's more of a norm and a low-end that, as you said, creates this big drop in terms of what the players get the, the quality of their daily routine, training facilities, game day facilities, medical, uh, food, uh, shoes, you know, things like that, that really some college players receive better benefits in their daily routine than professional players. Yeah, and I would, I would argue that I don't think there's any issue with the high end of how things are operated. I think the issues come in that there there needs to be almost a, a minimum standard required to be in to call yourself a professional club. And I don't know, you maybe you can elaborate on this. Is there really a minimum standard that says you can't operate in this flight if you don't have these amenities? And um, I guess in Europe there's a natural there's a natural predator there and that's that's relegation. If you don't operate like this, your performance will drop and you will drop. Uh, here it's it's more of a fixed league and I don't know is there a regulation body that would say this is not up to scratch. There isn't. It's on each league to do it themselves. So the MLS does the best job of making sure that everybody's taken care of, but that's why they're the top division. And when you hit the second and third divisions, it's a little bit more loose. And the league, so the USL, will do their best to make sure that clubs are operating professionally. But at the end of the day, money talks. And if an owner is just losing money and losing money, well, the the players and the club on the inside will feel the effects of that. I'm not sure if the person who walks into the stadium can see it as clearly. They'd have to look pretty deep to see things that that people on the inside would have a better feel for. But it's a definite problem when it comes to the idea that starting and running a professional soccer team is easy. It's it's, it's very expensive. Uh, there's no money to be made. Uh, you're almost guaranteed to lose money. And how does that affect the quality of life for the player? All right, Coach. So you mentioned how expensive it is to operate a second or third or any professional soccer club. So I'll ask you, what is what is the point of of operating is it to produce players is it to sell players or what exactly is do you think the point is i think the first thing that the owners who are great people in a sense that they're pouring a lot of their hard-earned money most of them successful business people and they're putting that money into soccer in this country giving a place in their community for people to come watch be entertained and fill their friday saturday sundays with a great sport and we should all be appreciative for that because without that money going all the way back to uh, the the start I'll start in the, the more modern era the start of MLS which is a handful of people Philip Anschutz Lamar Hunt uh, the, the Kraft family they're putting money into this sport that gives us the ability to have this conversation but when it comes down to this recent wave of what I call minor league soccer in the sense that it is just like minor league baseball they are all trying to find players and produce players. 
But at this stage, we are not quite yet good enough for the buying and selling like the rest of the world. We don't have the ability of, of Argentina or Brazil or Colombia or Uruguay where their best players as 18, 19, 20-year-olds are being gobbled up by European countries, uh, in particular the Big Five. And those players are going on to either have high-level success or maybe they get sold off for $500,000, a million, $2 million to, to lower-level teams or leagues around Europe. And we're getting there in terms of if you look at our young players taking the jump to go abroad are very brave because they're taking a huge risk. And even the good ones, even the Tyler Adams and the, the Gio Reynas and these kids at, at 17, 18, 19 are taking a risk to go abroad and be hopefully the next great American player. Even Pulisic at a young age are being sold for $73 million. Uh, These are big dollar amounts. But when it comes back home, I, I don't know if anyone on the technical side can answer that question in terms of, Players at the lower leagues, it, it's hard. It's hard to find them, and it's it's hard to keep moving them around for the business side. So would you say, because given just the sheer size of the United States and the population of the United States, what would you say some challenges that we face in the scouting process and the production process of young players that is unique from the rest of the world? Our first problem is that we don't invest. We don't invest in scouting networks. We don't invest in our own communities in a scouting network. So if you are a pro club and there are, in 2019, you're looking at 34, 10, 44, you're upwards of 70 pro clubs in the country right now, and that includes MLS clubs. Now, they all have scouting departments. All of them need to increase in size. They need more money spent on a scouting department. But at the lower leagues, they don't have scouting departments. They have coaching staffs. And a coaching staff gets on the phone, makes a couple phone calls. They don't have time to go out throughout the course of the year and look at players. They're going to use video and the occasional live viewing or trials. And so in that way, I don't think we've started off with that side of things on the scouting level of putting the resources into it. And that includes for a lot of these pro clubs. They do have youth arms. They have academies, as they're all calling them. And are they out getting the best players? Now, it's going to cause another debate of, well, you're stealing players from other clubs. Well, there's a natural progression in sport. You start off at, at a certain level, and you have to go to a higher level. And it's the professional club's job to produce academies, academy coaches, academy environments that are worthy of players to want to go to and understand that they're going to have a future in the game and learn and do all these things. So uh, that's a lot of separate talking points right there, but it, it does bring the idea of, as we could talk about, the U.S. national team for the men aren't great right now. Whose fault is that? Is that the national team program's fault? I don't think so. It's their, not their job to produce players. It's their job to find players. And, and one other point about the question you asked about the size of our country, we're a fascinating country in the sense that if you're from Boston, Massachusetts, to Miami, Florida, to Los Angeles, California, to Seattle, Washington, that is four different areas of the country different field types, different weather, uh, different cultural backgrounds. We're a very unique country in that way that I think it makes it more challenging to try to get it right. So do you think that – you mentioned the national team there briefly. Do you think that um, the challenges we face scouting at a professional level directly flow to challenges we face scouting as a national at a national level? Or do you think that maybe the – 
MLS clubs. I know there's been a lot of talk about MLS academies and producing homegrown players and how they work. And do you think that the scouting is maybe corrupted from the core, or do you think that one is doing better than the other? Obviously, you mentioned who has the burden of producing players. Is it the U.S. national team or the clubs, and obviously all that? Well, the the Federation tried to take a lead in terms of creating the Development Academy League for the boys in 2007. And when they did that, it was with the goal that all the best players in the big markets would funnel into this league and make their scouting job easier. And it makes sense. In terms of, okay, you're always going to say, well, what happens in Omaha, Nebraska? What happens in certain regions of the Mid-Atlantic or in certain areas of of um, the Northwest where there might be good players hundreds of miles away from major cities where these MLS, or not MLS, the Development Academy clubs are. And we can't solve that, right? We're just too big of a country for for these problems. If a good player uh, wants to make his or her way up, they need to train and then find their way to a pro club. That's their job. And the scouting part is very difficult because what you end up with a lot of times is they might be identifying the right players, but it doesn't mean they could get them. And that makes it hard, right? You might argue the same for Manchester United at this day and time, where I'm sure they're pretty good at evaluating players, but it doesn't mean they can get them to come to a club that's suffering a little bit in terms of redefining its culture after some coaching changes and and all those kinds of things. So uh, none of these problems are easy to solve, but I do I think the onus falls on these professional clubs to start to drive things with financial investment and understanding that it is the job of the clubs to produce better players. So to segue a little bit into current events, um, recently that's been brought to mass attention through Twitter and other news outlets that there is this push to uh, move all coaches, all youth national team coaches, to Chicago and operate out of a single hub. And what's led to that is there's been a massive vacancy of youth national team coaches, both on the men's and women's side. So I was I was wondering if you, how you, somebody who's been around this, view this move to mandate uh, a single hub in Chicago. Looking at both sides of it, the positive side of that move would be, for the first time ever, you would have all the coaches under one office showing up to work every day, talking about the game, talking about players, talking about tactics, talking about the ups and downs of a given birth year or a given age group or a given individual player, their their backgrounds, uh, where they're playing at in the world, which a lot of we have young Americans all over the world right now. And, and we have this debate, and uh, I don't know if debate is not the right word, uh, we have this back and forth with, with Mexico where we have a lot of players who have dual citizenship and they can play for both countries. And is there a value in having all of your staff together in one place to constantly be in touch about these things as a player moves from 14 to 15 to 17 to 20, or maybe they were on the radar when they were 14 or 15, and they come out when they're 20, you're going to have people in the room who said, oh, well, yeah, at that point in time, that player just wasn't good enough, but they've made great progress, which is why we overlooked them. We didn't overlook them, but we didn't rate them when they were younger. And and for our women's program, it's, it's it would be continued greatness, where what can they do to ensure that we don't drop off from the perch, right? number one in the world. And I think we're all confident that we could stay there. But does there need to be a change on the Federation side to ensure that continues to happen? You can make that argument. The other argument you can make is this country's too big. That's stupid. 
You don't have a training center in Chicago. It's too cold most of the year. And why wouldn't you have it somewhere else? Uh, but there's no perfect spot. So the idea that moving everyone to one location and having them work together every day, I think if, if, if I'm the national team and I say to them, that's a sacrifice you have to make to be a national team coach, I don't think that's the biggest sacrifice someone's ever made in their coaching career is to uproot and move to a location where the federation wants them. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Coach. It was it was great having you on, and I think we were able to have a good conversation about everything from professional soccer to scouting to kind of a history of American soccer, sub-leagues, and kind of how everything in this country operates at a general level, and I think it was a very educational talk, and uh, I'd love to have you on again sometime.